G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Um, before we pray, may I put you on the spot and just ask you um, a question? I don't expect you to call it out, um, you needn't do that, just in the privacy of your own mind, you understand. Um, here it is, here's the question, why did Jesus come into our world? For what reason did the Son of God appear on this planet in the flesh 2,000 years ago? Why did Jesus come into our world? Um, I'll give you a moment just to think that out. Don't, don't call it out, just uh, thinking it through. Why did Jesus come into our world? Do you have an answer for that? I bet you do. I bet you've got a bit of an answer at least. Uh, just recently, I was reading a bloke named Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson, um, he's an evangelical, a a Bible-believing man uh, in a very similar tradition to ours. He's the kind of guy that if he were here at church this morning, I think he'd fit in just fine, you know, just in terms of our approach to the Bible, our understanding of Jesus, the tradition that he's from. Uh, Anyway, Ferguson reckons um, that he knows how you'd answer the question, Um, especially if you've been around here a little while. Why did Jesus come into into our world? Well, here's our answer, to save sinners, didn't he? Isn't that the Bible, a Bible answer to the question, why did Jesus come into the world? To save sinners. Um, uh, or if you want a slightly fuller version and you've been reading John's Gospel, uh, you might say something like, to glorify God, why did Jesus come into the world? To glorify His Father as He saves sinners. Um, died for us, went to the cross, rose to life, thereby putting God's love on display for all to see um, So what's wrong with that? Well, says Ferguson, it's fine and it's right, it is biblical, but there there is a Bible answer to the question that it is leaving out Um, and a kind of important one. So if you take a look at, for example, 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, so written by the very same John who wrote John's Gospel, but a different letter, 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, okay, so the, the verse is at least on point for our question, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Uh, Or in the language of our passage, John's Gospel, chapter 16, how did Jesus see his own life's impact, um, What the the dent that he left in the world, so to speak, in the grand scheme of things, what effect did his life, death and resurrection um, have? According to Jesus, verse 11, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Um, According to Jesus, verse 33, take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Now, actually, I reckon overcome in that particular verse is a little bit of a, um, how would you put it, I don't know, ambiguous translation in a sense. Another modern version captures the word a bit better, I think, where it says, be courageous, I have conquered the world. Do you see the difference? It's not just overcome in the sense that, oh, you know, I got over that flu virus that I had, you know, oh, I survived that week at work. No, it's not just overcome in that sense. Rather, writes one expert, the verb overcome indicates victory. Jesus has conquered the world in the same way that he has defeated the prince of this world. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is an opening thought as we approach John 16, Christ died to save us. Yep, he did. I'm not interested in denying that for a moment. Uh, He died and rose to show the loving glory of God his Father. That is true as well. But here is an oft-neglected angle 
on what Christ did and achieved uh, and one that must shape and inform and I'd want to argue today transform our lives here and now uh, in this world. Jesus conquered evil, he beat the enemy, that is a biblical way of looking at what Jesus did, he overcame the world that stood against him, he rose victorious from death. Now, how must that shape our lives, your life and mine? That's what we're going to be looking at today from John 16. Could we please pray together as we come to the text now? Let's pray. Father in heaven, God over all the earth, Lord of this whole world, each of us, we confess, does tend to think of Jesus in smaller terms than we ought to. Father, our sense of him is inevitably smaller, is more domesticated, is less glorious than he truly is. And Father, we confess that our own sin is bound up in that as we make much of ourselves and less of anyone else around us. So would you challenge us please this morning, O God, to a larger, to a broader, to a more spectacular, and yes, perhaps to a more challenging and even unsettling view of our Saviour. Father, without losing sight, without losing sight of his love for sinners like us, may we learn to better reflect in ordinary life the victory of Jesus over evil, over this world. Teach us this morning, we pray. Amen. So if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the risen conquering son, as the hymn puts it, Uh, then today I put it to you, that conviction is going to shape three areas of your life, of our life together. Let me me tell you what they are. Firstly, let us no longer view the world as unwinnable. Let us no longer view the world as unwinnable, unwinnable. Let us no longer look within when we're at a loss and, and we don't know what to do, don't know where to go, don't know where to find guidance, but rather look to Him. And uh, let us not worry that we haven't got what it takes, that we'll never make it, for he has overcome. Um, So three points, let's start with that first one, the world. And I, I wonder this sometimes, do we secretly or not so secretly view the world as unwinnable in practice for Jesus? Uh, In our heart, in your heart, um, are they beyond us? You know, they, the world out there, are they kind of beyond us in practice? As we think about evangelism or outreach or sharing our faith as we, um, you know, from time to time, I stand up here or someone else does and we announce some new program, some new initiative. Um, Is it all a bit desperate, hopeless? Are we playing a losing game? I wonder if you can relate to that or have seen it or can identify it in your own hearts. Take a look because this passage, John chapter 16, it actually kind of stokes those doubts a little bit to begin with actually. If we pick it up from the end of um, chapter 15, Jesus' marching orders from last week, I'm crackling. Is that my fault, Warren? Let me move the microphone then. Is that better? We'll find out, won't we? There we go. All right. John chapter 15, though, stokes our doubts that maybe the world is unwinnable. Gosh, have a look at this. Uh, Do you remember his marching orders to um, the 11 men standing around him on the last night of his earthly life? His marching orders, the job that he gave them, fellas, verse 27, and you also must testify, um, that's their job, 
for you've been with me from the beginning. You also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. But have a listen to verse 2, to what they're up against. So that's their job, that's what they've got to get on with. Verse 2, they, that's the people of the world, will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time's coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They'll do such things because they haven't known the Father or me. I've told you this, so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you. Could you just roll me back a little bit, Warren? I feel like I'm booming. I want to be able to raise my voice, but not, I don't want to blow anyone's head off. <laughs> um, um, I've told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you. I don't think you'd call those promising words, would you? He's given them a job, you've got to go and testify, but what's he said is going to happen? Well, they'll put you out of the synagogue, that's kind of like the Jewish church, and by the way, they'll kill you, and in the process, they'll think that they're offering service to God in the process. Those are hardly promising words. In, in case you're unaware, tradition tells us that of those 11 men, only one of them survived to old age. And that was John, and he was exiled anyway. No, for the other 10 of them, well, like verse 2 says, they were killed, they were executed one by one, they were crucified or crucified upside down. Uh, or one way or another, they were killed, starting with James. We can read about it in Acts chapter 12. He was killed by the sword. So let me ask you, what conviction would cause these 11 men to stick at a game that would lead to their death? The conviction, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus had already won and that the world and not them, but it is the world that fights a losing battle, do you see, even as they went to their death. Christ has overcome and it is the world that's losing and that's where, uh, that's where we, um, what we see in the coming paragraph from verse 6, let's read on there, verse 6, because I've said these things, you're filled with grief, but I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men don't believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And I want to ask us this morning, do we believe that still, brothers and sisters? Believe that the Spirit of Jesus is the near and present power to change hearts towards God in this world. He will convict the world. And do we believe that as Christ went to the cross and in His resurrection, that He put the writing on the wall for the uh, prince of this world, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Or does the world seem kind of unwinnable to us as we lose sight of Christ's victory over evil and his power um, to change hearts? Nothing could be sadder. This is Kennedy Smart, a North American Presbyterian bloke. Nothing could be sadder. Many congregations and their pastors have simply lost the hope that they could be used in their communities. They've tried an evangelistic program and it failed and now they don't believe anything will work in their community. I 
think we've seen that sometimes, haven't we? Over the years in different churches, perhaps in our own hearts as well, churches who just run out of steam on evangelism. And so they end up devoting their energies to programs that are easier, to things much simpler than outreach, to stuff that they can measure and find success in more easily. Churches who run out of steam for evangelism, their efforts become half-hearted at it, and so it sort of is a self-repeating uh, 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 process, lack a sense of urgency and an, and an appropriate, if measured, optimism, um, forget to pray for actual conversions, actually praying that people would come to repentance and faith, uh, and they eventually collapse, don't we? Despondent, perhaps even blaming one another, turning against one another, certainly feeling a, a, a hopelessness about the mission of Jesus in the world. Let this be our remedy, brothers and sisters. If we feel like that at times, if those thoughts come in on us, I have overcome the world. So we can stick at it. He stands with us. Indeed, he goes for us. In fact, we go for him. That's the proper way around, isn't it? Conviction of sin, realisation of righteousness, a, a discovery of the judgment to come. Let's be a church that prays for that. So firstly, let's not view the world as unwinnable in view of the victory of Jesus. But secondly, secondly now, since Christ has overturned or overthrown or um, succeeded in such a hostile, dark world where the, it was so stacked against him, then where exactly are we supposed to turn for guidance, for um, truth, even for joy in the midst of things as we're left alone down here, well, alone in terms of Jesus having departed uh, still with his spirit though. Verse 12, have a look there, we see a different angle on his spirit's work amongst us. Chapter 16, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, says Jesus to these 11 men, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own, he'll speak only what he hears and he'll tell you what is yet to come? Just, just a quick pause there, I do want to read on. Does that bit there mean for you, O Christian, today, the Spirit is going to tell you, us, things about what is yet to come? Is that what that's saying there in context? Maybe about the future, maybe about, um, you know, things that we can't bear in our lives um, just yet. Secrets from God, which perhaps Jesus wants me personally um, to know, is the Spirit's, is that the, the promise to us about the Spirit? Is that His job now amongst us? Should I look for that? Should I listen for these messages? Well, in a word, let me say, no, no, in context, no. <laughs> because please remember that truth which these disciples still had to made, have made known to them. That was just the truth uh, which hadn't actually yet happened in their day. Do you see what I mean? It's interesting. We're listening into a conversation that is right in the middle of the gospel unfolding, do you see? What is yet to come for them was the gospel itself, was the death and resurrection. Just give it a couple of days, in other words. Because what was yet to come for them was the crucifixion and resurrection. The Spirit's ministry then remains the same for us today as it was for them. It's just that the timing is different, do you see? We've got to read the words, the words there in context. And let's continue, verse 14. Um, he, that is the Spirit, will bring glory to me. Jesus is speaking here. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Um, Just before we drive that home for us, can we skip down to verse 17 and read that little bit there? Because I think it's really comical, actually. Remember that as Ruth read it to us before, there's all of that repetition and kind of, you said in a little while, why is he saying that? Does anyone know what he's talking about? Um, Kind of conversation between us. I think it's supposed to be comical and it's there to highlight a contrast as you read it. I think the point is this, as long as the disciples, watch this as we read it, are only asking one another about what Jesus is meaning. They're just an echo chamber for their questions. Uh, But as soon as they ask Jesus, they get real answers that actually help them in real life. Take a look. Um, So Jesus is trailing off in verse 16 there. Verse 16, have you got it there? In a little while you'll see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. Verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while? you will see me no more, then after a little while you'll see me, and because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, which as we'll see means asking one another, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while, and so on? Verse 20, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, you will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. Can I put it this way? Our world might give us all sorts of great advice on lots of wonderful topics, it does, I'm a massive fan of Wikipedia, Um, but when it comes to knowing God, the world's got nothing. Uh, More pointedly, perhaps, on our own, we become an echo chamber for our own questions that we don't have answers to. I think that's what we're seeing played out here amongst the disciples. No Christian, the truth of God is to be found nowhere but, by, but in the Spirit-inspired message of God about Christ. So as 2 Peter puts it, uh, um, 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. In their day, they they craved answers, didn't they, that would turn their grief that their Jesus was going away and wouldn't be with them anymore and they'd never be able to find him. They craved answers that would turn their grief into joy. And as they natted together, they were nothing but an echo chamber. But it's when Jesus spoke to them the truth of the gospel and as it began to come alive to them in the work of the Spirit amongst them, that they actually found the joy that they were looking for. Have you found joy in your life in Jesus that can turn your griefs in this world around? I put it to you that those joys are to be found, but we won't find them just in just talking to one another. We find them as we come to God's word to us in the good news of Christ. They craved answers to questions that they couldn't answer on their own about their future with Jesus. And I fear that sometimes we've got good questions, but I don't know, turning to the Scriptures, figuring it out from the Bible, it just seems a bit hard, don't know where to start. Um, How would I begin? We kind of fear maybe finding tough answers, answers that are going to be maybe more demanding than we were kind of hoping for sometimes. 
He has overcome the world, friends. So let's heed his word to us, to us who are still in this world and trying to make our way um, under his lordship. So thirdly, lastly, uh, the victory of Jesus, thirdly, lastly, the victory of Jesus means we no longer need to worry that we haven't got what it takes, that the world is going to overcome us, that we'll never make it and that we are our own worst enemy. Uh, No, our worst enemy has been vanquished by Christ. Christ has done it for us. He doesn't ask us to do it for him. Would you please put an ear to how Jesus holds together his victory with his own disciples' failure? I find this so reassuring. Have a look with me from verse 27, please. From verse 27, still part of the same conversation, verse 27, no, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now skip down to verse 32. A time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, did you catch that, what Jesus is putting together there? Who, in, this, in, this, in those verses, who benefits from Jesus conquering the world? How are the beneficiaries described in those verses? Uh, Verse 32, it's for disciples who are scattered, each to his own home, who will leave him, leave Jesus, all alone. Does that strike you as odd? They're the beneficiaries of Jesus conquering the world. They're the ones, verse 27, loved by my Father. Imagine the reassurance for those men. As these 11 men endured the coming hours... Um, And days as they literally ran for their lives and left Jesus alone with Judas and the soldiers who were with Judas. Imagine what it could mean for your faltering faith. Um, This is Leon Morris, the late Australian theologian. He says, he, uh, Jesus, Jesus predicted their desertion in the very saying in which he assured them of the peace he would give them. He loved them for what they were and despite their shortcomings. When in the future they looked back on their desertion, they could reflect that Jesus had predicted it and in the full knowledge that they would act in this way, he had promised them peace. So may I put this to you, especially if you've spent months, um, perhaps years away from church, but you've come back here today, may I put this to you, Christ predicted the desertion of his very disciples. Do you realise that? And in the very same breath, he assured them of his love and of the peace that they would find in him. His victory, Christ's victory, belongs to Christ. He doesn't look for you to do it. Have you failed? Stuffed it? wandered, faltered, well, I can assure you of this, it hasn't taken Christ by surprise. And the question for you today is, will he be your peace in this world? 
Or will you keep looking elsewhere? Can I leave us with this? John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, um, truly you are a glorious God and we see your glory in the coming of the Lord Jesus. We see it in his rescuing us from judgment and from sin. Uh, But Father, thank you that in the gospel of Jesus, we also see this, this other angle, that the world is not greater than Jesus, that its power has not overcome him, but rather that in his life, his death, especially in his resurrection, we see that he overcomes the world, that he has the spirit who can turn life around for people like us. And Father, thank you that your victory in this world does not depend on us and our faltering efforts. What a tragic thing that would be. Uh, but Father, we pray... Would you grant us again and again, um, when we falter, when we wander, when we mess it up, would you please grant us again and again to come back to Christ, to seek forgiveness in him? And Father, would you please grant us that um, assurance, not just in terms of how it benefits us personally, alone, as individuals, Uh, but what it means for the people around us and the world around us. Father, we believe that Christ has overcome the world and so we pray would you use us for his glory um, amongst people who need to come to him. Uh, We pray that even this week, would you please grant us opportunities to speak of Jesus, to act in ways, loving ways that um, put him on display in our lives. Um, Father, we pray for that mighty work of conversion, of regeneration, of people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. May they discover the peace that we have found in him. Would you do that, please, for our loved ones, for those perhaps we've been praying for for decades since they were born? Uh, Would you do it, please, for those um, people, you know, who we've known for years, those friends, colleagues, uh, who we feel a little bit at a stalemate with. We're not sure how to move the relationship forward in terms of speaking of Jesus. Father, would you please, by the work of your spirit, change lives even today, even this week, and use us, your servants, in that pursuit. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.